Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses. And then I'm going to pray, and then we are going to walk through these verses together, okay? So here it is, Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the, the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name and among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would bow with me. Father, I pray you would bless this study uh, this morning and in the weeks to come as we look at these inspired words that you revealed through Paul to the church in Rome and to the church in every age. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, if we had took, took the time, and we're not going to, we, we could turn to Acts chapter 20, and we could see at the beginning of Acts 20 that the Apostle Paul will arrive in the southern Greece area, and he will settle himself for the winter. The year is A.D. 56 into the beginning of A.D. 57, and he is staying in a home of his friend Gaius, who lives in Corinth. That is where Paul is. He's there, he's resting, he's praying, he's at the end of his third missionary journey. He is strategizing, he is envisioning um, sort of a next missionary journey, but, uh, but honestly it's more than that. It's, a, it's an entire new missionary endeavor that would encompass all of Western Europe, as far as Spain, which in that day in the Roman Empire was, was the furthest place that most knew about. But what Paul does is he makes a contingency. Paul knows that he is headed to Jerusalem to de deliver a gift to the churches there in Jerusalem, a gift from the Gentiles to the Jews. And he knows that he may um, not survive this trip. There is something out there that awaits Paul. It looms large in the distance although he is unaware. And so in the event of his death, Paul wants his core doctrines to be set out in a, in a systematic manner, in a methodical manner, and he wants to deposit them in the church in the very heart of the Roman Empire. And so for three months at Gaius' house with a man named Tertius, who's there as his secretary, Paul will compose this letter 
to the Romans. And in doing so, what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit revealed by God, he will change the world. And to this day, whenever Romans is faithfully preached and truthfully taught, people are saved and revivals occur and the people of God are encouraged. It was the book of Romans that transformed St. Augustine from a pagan to a preacher where he, he, he's crying out, he's, he's searching, he's at the end of his, of his rope and he hears the words, take and read, take and read, take and read and he opens up the scroll and there it is, Romans chapter 13. And he said it was like the springs of heaven were poured out on him. It's the book of Romans that converted and then consumed the great reformer Martin Luther, who over meditation and prayer and study and, 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 and great labor got to the bottom of Romans 1, 16 through 17 and to understand that the righteousness of God is this great and free gift. And he said it was like the chains fell off. It was the book of Romans. Actually, it was Luther's preface to the Romans that's being read when a minister 200 years later will wander into a church in London in the midst of his failure and in the midst of his discouragement and he will hear read aloud Luther's preface to this book letter of the Romans and it says John Wesley's heart was warmed and he said that the Lord set him afire John Wycliffe, who was so affected by Romans as he translated it into the English language, said this, For so much as this epistle is the principal and the most excellent part of the New Testament, it is the pure gospel, it is also a light and a way in unto the whole Scripture. He said, I think it proper that every Christian not only know it by heart and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually. That's how they talked back then. As with the daily bread of the soul, no one, no one can truly read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. And the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. It was J.I. Packer that said, when the message of Romans gets into a man or woman's heart, there is no telling what may happen. It seems like a lot of hype. And yet this letter is regarded by secular academia as one of the greatest pieces of literature in the world. And we know it in the church. 
as that which has become the foundation of what we believe about how God, a holy God, would save you and I. Unholy, dirty, rebellious sinners. Well, let's ask the question of why did Paul write Romans? And I'll, I'll answer it a few ways. One is to say this. So he, he didn't know the church in Rome. He, he didn't know um, that church. So the way that the church in Rome was founded is, is, is unknown in some ways, but it can be hypothesized that because about 50,000 Jews lived in Rome at the time, it may be that at a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. They land there in Acts 2. They hear Peter preach the gospel, and many are saved and go back to Rome. And it is there, under the power of the Holy Spirit, having believed that Jesus is the Messiah who did come, the one promised in the Old Testament. He did come. He died for our sins, and he was raised to new life so that we might have new life, went back to Rome to tell all their fellow Jews. Some believed and some did not. Well, what happened is these Jews that became Christ followers, those that believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, they began to meet with one another, and yet they, they were enduring this opposition from the other Jews that were observing synagogue at the time. And there became such a rift and a a um, conflict between the two Jews, the, the Christian Jews, those that were meeting as the church and those that were meeting in the synagogue, that in A.D. 49, there is an emperor named Claudius. And Claudius gets so weary of the rioting that's taking place in Rome between the Jews that he decrees that all the Jews must be expelled from Rome. And so they leave. We know this from the historian Suetonius who writes this. He records that Claudius expelled the Jews because they were continually rioting over the instigation of, and then this is probably the most unfortunate um, uh, the typo in all of history, the instigation of Crestus, which most believe Suetonius didn't realize it was actually Christus who they were arguing over. Among those that left were Aquila and Priscilla. They soon afterwards found their way to Corinth. Paul is with them in Corinth. Five years after this, it'll be A.D. 54, Claudius dies. The Jews are able to come back. Paul is now writing this letter three years after that. Now, let me just help you imagine what was going on. You have a church where some Jews had gone to Acts, uh, to, to Jerusalem. They hear the gospel preached. Likely you also have some merchants that are coming from, the, uh, from Israel, and they would come to Rome, and they would do this, and they would meet with the church, and the church begins to grow, and these Jews were trusting Christ as the Messiah. Oh, here and there, uh, what was known as a God-fearer, who was a Gentile, who who um, agreed or adopted that Jesus was, or that God was the only true God and was somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, they would come in as part of the fold. But you have a predominantly Jewish church with a handful of Gentiles. Here's what happens. In A.D. 49, when Claudius kicks out all the Jews, do you know who's left to run the church? The Gentiles. 
And it stays that way. And the Gentiles, they begin telling their friends and their friends tell their friends. And the church continues to grow. And now it is growing up as a Gentile church under Gentile leadership. And the first thing they do is they begin to not wear ties on Sunday morning. And their preacher begins to wear jeans. They put all the hymnals in a closet and they start projecting the words on a screen. And so you can just imagine the mayhem that's taking place in the Gentile church. Well, in A.D. 54, the Jews get to come back and you have these Jews that have been longing for coming back to being with their brothers in Christ, in Rome, in the church. And they come and they find that the Gentiles have ruined everything. Not only that, at this time in the church, they're still wrestling with how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian. And so they, the Jew, these Gentiles, they weren't practicing circumcision and they weren't keeping dietary laws and they didn't care about them. And they have the Jews come back and say, no, you got to do this. So they're wrestling and they're having this real struggle. And Paul's writing into this. And you'll see evidence of it as you get later into Romans and Chapters 13 and 14 and 15, and he tells us how we are to live with brothers. How do we live with brothers and sisters that see things differently than us? Well, as you think about the purposes for Paul writing, one of those purposes was to bring unity to a church that was in conflict. And peace is one of the critical themes. First, between the, um, um, uh, the sinner and God peace that's brought by faith in Christ because of all that God has done through His Son, Jesus. But also the peace that we are to have with one another. Another reason that Paul writes is to say, hey, listen, I'm I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm taking this gift and then I want to come to see you, but pray for me while I go there. I want the gift to be received by the Jews in the way it, is, it was given, and that is with great thanksgiving from the Gentile churches for all that the Jews had given them and taking the gospel. And then I think the third reason, and maybe one of the main reasons, is that Paul wants to come to Rome, but ultimately he wants to go to Spain. And having, having planted churches and preaching the gospel all in this eastern Roman Empire area, he now wants to go west. And while Jerusalem was the first center, Antioch is the second center, he now envisions Rome as being the third center of the, of the Christian movement and that they would begin to launch missionaries out west. And so he says, I'm coming because I want you to send me to the ends of the earth. Well, This is what Paul does, and in doing so, he's presenting an in-depth doctrinal study of salvation, and he presents a crystal clear presentation of the gospel. Let me give you a quick outline of Romans. This is sort of down and dirty, but this will help orient you to Romans. When you look at chapters 1, 2, and 3, here's what you could put. You could put condemnation as the title for chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what that is, is it is that Paul is presenting that God's wrath, the holy, righteous God, his wrath is being poured out on the unrighteous. And that we all are unrighteous, whether we are pagan, or we are moralists, or we are Jews. 
We are all unrighteous because sin has infected all of us. In fact, he'll conclude in chapter 3 by saying, no one is righteous, no, not one. So then you get to chapters 4 through 5. It begins actually the last half of chapter 3. You could title that salvation. Condemnation, then salvation. How God has then reconciled sinners the unrighteous, to himself through Jesus. So the question is, how can a holy God bring unholy men and women into his holy presence without compromising his holiness? And he answers that Jesus, his eternal son, becomes a man, takes on the sin of humanity and suffers the penalty of sin, becomes the object of the wrath of God. Jesus took the place of sinful man and bore our punishment so that we could be made new. Well, then that leads into chapters 6, 7, and 8, and you would call those sanctification, condemnation, salvation, then sanctification. Now that you have been made new, now that you are reborn, your identity is in Christ. And Paul is also honest about the still experiential struggling with sin in the Christian life. And yet the answer is not that you do better, but that you by faith rely upon the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to remind you of who you are are and God's love for you as he is transforming you now into who you already are in him. Well, condemnation and uh, salvation, then sanctification, chapters 9 through 11, those are vindication. How can God in his sovereignty include Gentiles into eternal covenantal promises he made to the Jews, even though the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And yet God is not done with them. And in his sovereignty will vindicate himself in fulfilling those promises. And then you get to chapters 12 through 16, you'd call that application. First, how it applies to ourselves. Then how it applies to the church, and then how it applies in our relationship to government and our neighbors, and then how does it apply to those whom we see things differently? And then how does it apply in our mission to the world around us as we take the gospel of Jesus? Well, these first seven verses, this is the introduction to Romans, and actually an introduction to many of the key themes in Romans. He, he doesn't know these people, and so he's going to introduce himself. And the way that Paul introduces himself is he introduces himself theologically. But Paul's not going to present Paul. He's not going to come and go, okay, this is my resume. I was, I was born you know, from, from a tribe of Benjamin, a circumcised on the eighth day. He, he tells all that in another place, but he doesn't do it as a bragging way. He says, look, all that's become rubbish to me. Paul doesn't show up with his LinkedIn resume to try to prove himself to the Romans. What Paul does is he's going to lead with and explain who he is theologically. And in doing that, he's not going to present Paul at all. What he's going to do is he's going to present Jesus. 
He's going to present Jesus as the foundation of everything he is and the foundation of this gospel that he's been sent with. So look at it again. Verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He, he starts the letter and says, Paul, you, you ever gotten a long letter and you don't know who it's from and you got to read all the way down and finally see who it's from? Well, it did, it's not the way they did it in the, in the, in the ancient first century. They, they began by saying, okay, I'm Paul and I'm writing to you. There's a story uh, that a preacher tells, and, and he, was, um, he was preaching, and, and some bozo in the congregation thought it would be funny to, to write a note and, and have it slipped to him just before he got up on the platform. And um, the, um, the, so he hands the note to, the, to an usher who, you know, thought that it was legitimate, and then he hands it to the pastor. The pastor gets up, he opens the note and reads it. And on the note were big... Um, block letters, F-O-O-L, fool, to which the preacher says, you know what, something remarkable has just happened today. Many times I've received a letter from somebody who forgot to sign their name. This is the first time I've ever received a letter from a man who signed his name but forgot to write the letter. It's kind of what Paul's doing. He's, he, he, he signs his name up front. He lets us know who he is and that he's a man who's been cut down to size. This is not, this is not the building up of Paul because the first two words, it says, Paul, Paulos, doulos. And doulos is the word that's translated in our ESV as servant. It's probably better translated as bond slave or as slave. See, the concept for Paul is so close and it's real and it's so pervasive and without regard to how it might appear, he begins to identify himself in the most humble of ways as a slave. You never get a second chance to make a first impression or so the saying goes. And Paul wants to make sure from the very start they know who he is. He is in Christ, his identity is so informed by Christ that the only place to start is with his loyal and faithful and complete service, his dependence upon Jesus, total devotion, total dependence. Listen, he knows You'll find out in chapter 6, he knows he's been bought by Christ and, is in, and it's Christ that owns him. And it is meant, and, and, and what it is, is it's this great privilege to humbly devote himself to Jesus. Because one of the things that Romans is very clear about is that we are all servants to something. We all serve something. It's not a matter of if, it is what or who. Listen, whether it's sin or death or, or this flesh that's, that's capable of wickedness beyond our imagination or whether we've been privileged enough to be called by God to serve Jesus as a slave to him and his righteousness and his life. Listen, this is, this is not restricting. It's the most liberating, freeing place a man or woman can find himself in all their life having been freed by Christ and now taken as one of his own. 
And Christ makes it possible for us to choose him as the one we serve. Well, he says he's an apostle, and what it means is he's, he's so here's the slave, I'm the lowliest of all. An apostle is not speaking about his honor, it is speaking about the authority he's been trusted. But make no mistake, Paul is not saying, listen, this is something I was worthy of, or, or something that, uh, that, 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 you know, that I, I earned or, or merited, or I was the obvious choice for. The apostleship wasn't of his own doing. He knew it came from Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least unworthy to be called an apostle because I've persecuted the church. 79 times in the New Testament, apostles, there is someone who is sent. In Galatians 1, Paul makes it clear that he was sent not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And he reminds us here, everyone who speaks for God must be sent by God. So it is right to take this letter of Romans, not as the words of Paul, but as the words of Jesus. Paul's the messenger, the sent one of the message of Jesus, the very words of Christ. Listen, not every Christian has been called to be an apostle by God, but every Christian we find in Romans 8, 28 has been called of God. And a healthy Christian perspective is the knowledge that God's chosen the believer and gifted you and placed you right where he wants you to be today. Paul will also say he is set apart. Galatians 1.15, Paul tells us he was set apart before he was born. That, that he was prepared in his mother's womb to serve the gospel. And that is staggering to think that he was prepared and called and served uh, uh, and set apart in his mother's womb. And that Paul's unbelief and his persecution of Jesus were not enough to thwart the will of God. Lest anyone believe it is because Paul had such a remarkable education or such great privilege or because he was a Roman citizen. No, that is not why he was set apart and called by God. He was set apart and called by God because of his grace. His unmerited, undeserved grace upon Paul. First time we meet Paul is in Acts, Acts chapter 8. He's called Saul there. And it's when he's there at the stoning of Stephen, he approves it. Stephen's clothes after his death are laid at Paul's feet. And then Paul begins to ravish the church. He is headed to Damascus with papers from the lead Pharisees to go and round up the Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. Because he's serving a cause and he's zealous for his religion. And it's on the road to Damascus that Jesus stops him dead in his tracks, blinds him, throws him to the ground, and says this to him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Saul thought he was crushing a cause, but he discovered he's actually persecuting a person. The earth shook, the ground 
uh, he falls to the ground, he's blinded, and in that moment he confesses Jesus Christ as his Savior. Listen, whenever you come face-to-face with the life-changing message of who Jesus is, your life will never be the same. It cannot be the same. You come face-to-face with this reality that your life, your, your life's not your own anyway. It never was that you've been created by God and he desires you to be all that you were created and meant to be, but from the second page of the Bible, the whole earth has been ruined and stained with sin. So while we're created by God, with our very first breath, we are ruined with sin. And it's because of this reality of sin in the world and the reality of sin in our life that we all have to go through a radical change, and it is not a change any of us can accomplish on our own. Listen, most of you have lived long enough to know you can't. Real change, radical change, I mean radical change. You can't do that on your own. It has to be done for you. It takes place in Christ and because of Christ. And God desires you to be who you were created to be. And we see that happens only in Christ. When Christ comes, it means your world is utterly disrupted. I don't mean it's all, you know, it's like a Damascus Road thing. That, that was Paul's. But it means that you come to a place where you exchange your identity in sin and death and flesh and guilt and shame and pain for an identity in Christ. And I will tell you that always brings with it a radical change. Anybody ever heard of Reggie White? Played defensive tackle for the uh, Green Bay Packers. Well, he retired with the Green Bay Packers. Played with the... Listen, preseason started yesterday, all right? Uh, buckle up. We're going to have football analogies, okay? So, uh, Reggie White, well, he died in 2004, but um, he, tragically too early. He played 15 seasons, 13 consecutive Pro Bowls, 10 uh, years he was an All-Pro, 198 um, career sacks, 232 career games. Troy Aikman said about him, he is the monster under my bed when I try to sleep at night. In fact, he also said, he said, I think when I got my insurance policy back from the Lloyds of London, there was an amendment to the contract that they'd cover for me 14 games except the ones that Reggie White played in. He was a big man. By all accounts, one of the greatest that ever played football, but he would stand in front of FCA groups all the time, and he would say this in the beginning. Say, I want you to know I'm a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And his name's Jesus. I'm a nobody telling everybody I can about the somebody who can save anybody. That's what Paul is doing as he introduces himself. I am nobody. He is everything. 
well, he, he gets in and he, um, there in uh, verse 2, and you think, oh my gosh, he's only in verse 2. It goes faster, I promise. <laughs> Actually, I'm a little surprised I'm only in verse 2. But anyways, let's just go with it, all right? So, so, so which he promised beforehand through the prophet. So here's the thing. So, so the gospel, it, it, this gospel that he was called to, this, this gospel he set apart for, it, it is not some good advice that, that you must do. It, it, is, it is good news about what has already been done for you. Something's already happened. Listen, every religion in the world, religion says this. Here are some things you need to do. Here is some good advice. Here are some principles to follow. And these things will help you get to God. And Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 no. That's religion. God says, there's not anything you can do. I have done everything. It is not something you do inside of you. It is something I did outside of you. Paul will talk about an alien or a foreign or an outside righteousness that has to come and work its way on us. Lest you ever think this is about anything you do, it is not. It is about something that has already been done. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the roots of the gospel, while it is good news, Paul says it is not new news. It was, be, it was told and promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That God was announcing with great joy and anticipation what he planned from before the foundations of time that took place in history 2,000 years ago and recorded by reliable eyewitnesses that have stood the test of time and scrutiny and persecution. God is the God who keeps his promises. Now, the content of the gospel concerns God's son, Jesus. Now, I want you to see three things. I'm going to speed this up, and you can ask for my notes on this if you want. But here are three things I want you to see. At the end of verse 2, he calls him God's son. Then he calls him um, the seed of David or um, uh, the descendant from David. And then in verse 4, he calls him uh, the son of God. He says this, that he is uh, concerning his son or God's son, he who is descended from David according to the flesh. And this is, okay, he's God's son. He's his son. He's the eternal son. He's the co-equal, co-existence, um, co-everything with God from before time till after time, from eternity past to eternity future. There is no beginning. There is no end to the Son of God who reigns with God the Father. And in a moment, he is sent into history. He steps out of eternity into history, born through a virgin Mary into the line of David as God had promised in 2 Samuel where Samuel said, I want to build you a temple. God says, no, you're not going to build me a temple, but your son's going to build me a temple and he's going to sit on the throne and it'll be an everlasting kingdom and he will be my son. Because God knows he's sending his eternal son to step into history to be the son of David, who then in verse 5 it says was declared, or verse 4, declared to be the son of God in power. When Jesus comes in his incarnation through the virgin 
Mary, he comes in his weakness. He comes in humanity. He becomes fully man without in any way for one second, millisecond, millimoment, diminishing his deity. Fully God and fully man, yet he comes in weakness and he ministers and lives his life under the power of the Holy Spirit. But when he is raised from the dead, he's not raised from the dead in weakness. He is raised from the dead in power. And in that moment, what God does is takes his eternal son, who entered humanity as the son of David, is now in power declared to be the, the Messiah. In his humanity, declared to be the Messiah, the son of God. It is not that God looked down and go, you know what, I like that Jesus fellow. He's doing pretty good. I think I'll call him my son. No, he's the one who came from eternity into history and by resurrection through power takes his rightful place as the throne and cosmic Lord and ruler of all. And in this, what Paul has done is he has given us a picture of Jesus that he will unpack for the rest of Romans. Well, then he says, um, look at verse 5 and 6, and it says this, Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name in all nations, including you who are called. What, what, this, what happens to us through the gospel is dramatic. It, it, it's, it's exciting. The, the, God's good news catches up to us, it transforms our life. But, but the good news he announces is primarily about something that has happened, events through which the world makes the world now a different place than it was. It is about what God has done in Jesus. And what he says is, I'm a messenger of this by God's grace and apostleship. Now, let me put these two things together for you. 155 times in the New Testament, grace appears. 100 times in Paul's writing, 25 here in Romans. If you don't understand grace, you will not understand Romans. It, it will be hard for you to understand what Paul says. Grace has come to Paul through Jesus. Jesus, who was born as a son of David and raised as a son of God in power. He's going to write later that, that this grace was obtained through the obedience and death of Jesus. And then it is poured out through the risen and reigning Son of God in power. So, so there is no grace towards a sinner. There is no grace to you, no grace to me, no grace to Paul. Apart from the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Grace is a reality that comes from God through Jesus for his work in us. It is not something we have a right to. It is not something we can get for our own. Jesus obtained it and we get it freely because of his obedience and his death. Add for the Marines, is it earned, never given. You become a Marine, you go through the sacrifice, you go through the hardship, you go through the training, you get it, you deserve it. But Christianity is exactly the opposite. Given, 
never earned. And I would say this, what Paul will say through Romans, to the degree that you are trying to save yourself, you cannot be saved by God. The degree to which you are trying to save yourself means that you cannot, by faith, look to another and say, he's my Savior. Listen, if you get it, if you get this grace, it's because you absolutely did not deserve it. Now look at what he does. Grace and apostleship. He puts those two things together. What he means is that his calling as an apostle was a gift of grace. Grace isn't just the mercy towards Paul as a sinner. It's also power that enables Paul to do what he's called to do. Now listen, Paul's called to be an apostle. You and I aren't called to be apostles. But we are all called, if you're a believer, and you have been given the grace of God, not only is a mercy for your sins and that which brings you to salvation, but also that which enables you. One writer put it this way and says this. At the end of verse 5, put your, put your calling in there instead of the word apostleship. You might put through Christ, I've received grace and my role as a teacher or grace and my musical ability or grace and being a student or grace and singleness or grace and widowhood or grace and motherhood and what that means is that God freely gave you grace he has forgiven you and he has given you in power uh, a power to do this calling to fulfill this role that he's designed for you by faith there is not a role there is not a role in your life that can be lived the way God desires for you to live it apart from his grace. Being a godly mother or being an apostle are both impossible without the power of grace. And all of this is aimed at bringing us to the obedience of faith, which is another way of saying it's one act of obedience that brings salvation. It's faith. Luther says, believe it and you have it. So grace is, is received by faith and that it, and it aims at faith. And God gives grace as the power and the enabling for service and for obedience. And so here's the reality. Any obedience that you may demonstrate as a believer, any love for God, you didn't do that and that wasn't in your power. It is done in the power of grace, never in our power. Well, he ends it, 6 and 7. He, he says, listen, you, you're called to belong to Jesus. I'll just say, if you have a problem with the reality that you've been called to belong to Jesus, it's a good time to dig into that because you'll get a dose after dose after dose of it in Romans. Listen, here's the comfort. You're not smart enough to do it. Praise God that he calls us to belong to Jesus. And notice why. He says that they're called to, believe Jesus, to, to, called to belong to Jesus. They are beloved of God. He goes on to say they're called as saints. You're not a saint who gets called. You're called 
And in that calling, you're made a saint. You are holy. And you are the objects of grace and the recipients of peace. Listen, the question we'll ask over and over again in Romans is, what's a Christian? What's a Christian? I think many of us in the church might say, well, it's a person that lives a certain way, but I am here to tell you it is not a person that lives a certain way. Here's a Christian. It is a person who is loved by God. You are first loved by God. You are loved by God. And the moment you know that you are loved by God, you're called. Which means you're invited to take hold of the grace that he means for you. And in that he makes you holy. Holy. And you never, ever have the righteousness of God put upon you without the same time finding that it's also working in you to transform you into becoming who you already are in Jesus. What's your relationship with God? Do you know him? You trying to impress him or appease him? Trying to clean things up? So that he'll notice you or clean things up so he won't notice you maybe. Let me say this this morning. Here's what you need to know about God from what we've looked at in Romans so far is that God loves you. And when you know that, you realize he's calling you to belong to Jesus. Not anything you could ever earn. Something you surely don't deserve. But by God's grace, he's pouring out on you. Will you believe that this morning? If you will, will you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I pray you would do what only you can do. And that is to take your words that you revealed and then inspired Paul to write under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit and then has been preserved by your Holy Spirit through the church to this very day. So that as Paul sat in Corinth that winter, he wrote not only to Rome, but in your providence he was writing to us as well. Father, may we hear your voice this morning. And so we pray you would do what only you can do. In the name of your Son, Jesus.